Welcome back for part two of our podcast conversation with the legendary Walter Murch. I'm Glenn Kaiser, director of the Dolby Institute, and this podcast is a co-production of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Um, if you missed part one of the conversation with Walter, uh, he took some questions from Ren Kleiss and Gary Rydstrom, um, talked about his work in documentary films, had an in-depth conversation about some scenes from Apocalypse Now in the conversation, and then we talked quite a bit about music uh, and the use of music in The Godfather and The English Patient. So if you missed it, check that out. And uh, right now, we'll just dive right in with part two of the conversation with Walter Murch. There's emerged a little bit of conventional wisdom uh, that that I, I'm curious to get your take on. That this this era of modern sound design sort of originated uh, with with the work that uh, that you and the team did on on Apocalypse. Um, and I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts about where Apocalypse sits in in kind of the the overall history of of cinema sound and what, what was the state uh, of cinema sound before that film and, and what's the lasting, uh, I guess, effect on, on the craft that Apocalypse rightly has? Well, I, I think you can tell if you listen to THX 1138 or The Conversation or even The Godfather in places that we're straining at the leash uh, of what <laughs> the technical things could do at the time. This is all pre-Dolby and so we were our hands were tied, in a sense, by the, the Academy mono system, which was mono and nothing over 8,000 cycles and nothing much below 80 cycles. And because it all had to fit in an optical soundtrack. Yeah. And we, we had, but we were pushing at the edges of that, always trying to get more frequencies in then, or to make the appearance of more frequencies, to create more dynamic range or the illusion of more dynamic range. And even in times like in American Graffiti, to create the illusion of stereo by the use of the background music and how we reverberated that music. So, but they were all mono films. So when Apocalypse Now came along, it was not only a stereo film, it was a format that um, at the time that we started it in 1977, nobody had done before, which was you know, five channels of sound surrounding the audience and then one channel of super low frequencies going two octaves down from 80 cycles, not only going down to 40 cycles, but going down to 20 cycles. And you can tell, I think, by listening to the film how excited we were by everything that we were <laughs> discovering as we did the film. And also the nature of the film is, and the nature of Francis, is that he had his money in the film, he had his house in the film, he had, you know, the souls of his grandchildren uh, in, in the film. And it's to his eternal credit that when faced with those things, he did not pull back. He, he, he went even further into weird places, an experiment, whereas any normal filmmaker would say, oh, oh, there's too much money on this, we have to, we have to be normal, and Francis mm. didn't, and so we were encouraged in the editing, you know, look at the first six minutes of the film and you can see, and we were encouraged in the sound design to go out there and to be strange, and so I think the combination of 
the new technology that we were doing, the excitement that we all had experiencing this. It, it's like skiing on a slope that nobody had skied on before. So the, the snow was really nice, and we had a lot of fun <laughs> doing it. And uh, this idea of, of doing these weird experiments, you know, somebody once said, you know, the first, uh, the first 10 minutes of Apocalypse Now are the biggest experimental film ever made. Well, whether that's yeah. true or not, but there's a feeling of that, and I think that informs the whole film. So it's a combination of technical uh, adventuresome and aesthetic no-holds-barredness at the same time, which I think is uh, very exotic still when you watch the film. I remember uh, being at the Telluride Film Festival, uh, I think two years ago, uh, when you and Francis and Vittorio Storaro were there presenting the film um, and uh, and watching it again with an audience for the first time in many many years, I, I have to admit it kind of it kind of had a, a, a inadvertently had a negative effect on the rest of the Telluride Film Festival for me because everything else <laughs> seemed like student film work compared to right. just the the level of craftsmanship and experimentation. Uh, that was an apocalypse. It's it's amazing that it still feels like such a hugely groundbreaking piece of work, you know, so right. so many years later. And I was struck also by thinking you guys were all so young when you made that film. I mean, you guys were barely in your thirties for the most part when right. when you made yeah. that. I mean, Francis was thirty nine when the film came out. I was thirty five, I guess thirty thirty three, thirty four when we started. Uh, yeah, no, amazing. You know. Um, it's, uh, what can I say? <laughs> we were, we were uh, caught up in the madness of it and responded accordingly. A, a dirty little technical secret about the film is, uh, which has never been duplicated, is that all of the premixes were done using DBX uh, noise reduction. Uh, which, and then the final print was done using Dolby. As, as uh -huh. people who know Dolby and know the history of Dolby will understand, at that time, there was only Dolby A, which only gave you six decibels of noise suppression, whereas uh -huh. DBX, because of their uh, system, gave you 20 decibels. And we had so many premixes on that film, there was so, many, so much generational loss that we were terrified the final product would just be a big ball of hiss. So the fact that it still sounds as good as it does is due to this mix and match of two different noise reduction systems working kind of in tandem. After that, Dolby forbade, I think, you were forbidden from, you had to use only Dolby if you were going to release in Dolby. So that's, that's why it, it has never been done again. Now, you, of course, everything's digital now, so nobody needs to worry about uh, surface noise, but... Believe me, a large part of our brains back in 1978 were uh, occupied thinking, how can we reduce, reduce the amount of surface noise on this film? Sure. Well, I want to go to another question I have. Um, and this is from a, um, I, I, I go to a lot of film festivals uh, as part of my job. And I'm always interested, uh, my ears always perk up when I, when I hear, experience a low-budget independent film that has really great sound work because it doesn't happen 
that all that often, quite frankly. Um, and at Sundance this past year, I had the experience of watching a movie, The Fits, which was directed by Anna Rose Holmer, uh, who is a, a young uh, filmmaker um, working in, in New York. And it's about, uh, it's about uh, kind of a psychosomatic um, series of, of fits and hysteria in an all-girls school. But the, the, tra- the, the soundtrack was done by this amazing young man, Chris Foster, working in New York. Uh, and so uh, he and I become friendly. And, and when I told him I was going to interview you, he, he had a question for you, which he's, he, says, um, he says, I've recently been brought on to sound design and mix a low-budget ind- independent film, and the filmmakers would like to involve me in the picture editorial process, which I feel very fortunate uh, about. I'm curious on your thoughts on how I should best utilize this stage of the post-process as the picture is being formed. And particularly in the case, this is a fairly straightforward, naturalistic script film. Um, how do you think I can practically benefit the overall film so early in the process? And uh, so that's Chris's question. And, and I also, I think he's getting at something interesting here, which is what's the role of sound design in what I think some people would consider a pretty straightforward, naturalistic film? Well, he's, he's, and you are describing exactly the situation that we at American Zoetrope found ourselves in in 1969, which is that we were making, uh, to a certain extent, naturalistic, low-budget, independently financed films and pouring a disproportionate amount of our budget into the sound because, <laughs> as you know, Francis and George and myself will all say, if you have a dollar to spend and you spend it on great sound, it pays back bounteously, whereas to spend it on production design or camera, of course you have to, but on the other hand, uh, those things are so expensive, relatively speaking. I mean, you can electrify an audience with a judiciously chosen sound effect of I don't know, wax paper crumpling close to the microphone if it happens at the right moment. Uh, You Uh can send the theater into uh, overdrive. So that was our rationale, is that we didn't have much money and we wanted to create the biggest effect. So let's put more money into sound than other people do because we get more, literally, more bang for our buck. And right. uh, THX, as a science fiction film, which was shot all on real locations in 1969 San Francisco, it depended to a tremendous amount on the sound to create this sense of another universe, another world. That's right. That's right. Several hundred years in the future. And But, you know, the rain people is pretty much as this, uh, as your friend is described, it was just, it was a road trip film and uh, conversation, although it's different because it's about a sound man. So you're asking the audience to share this man's psychology. And because he's a sound recorder, Harry Cole, you as the audience tend to think about sound in a way that you don't, if you're watching, say, the rain people, a wife on the run from her husband, wondering if she should get a divorce or what. Um, so on THX and uh, I might add on Star Wars, part of uh, George's idea was to have the sound effects be worked on during the shooting and during the editing. So 
as early as right. possible to hire the sound designer. We didn't call we called it sound montage then, but have somebody thinking about sound during the shooting and have them thinking about sound during the editing and adding things. This is all way pre-digital, so you can imagine mm -hmm. the technical complexity of, of doing that uh, back then. But you, you have to find the sweet spot for every film in terms of what sound can contribute. As a general rule, I, I have found that this, you can push the sound always further than you think you can. Clearly, there are times where you can push it too far, but pretty much the, the film will always tell you, you've gone too far. But basically, the sound will always say, you have to listen carefully, but the soundtrack will say, go, for, go further, go weirder, go deeper, do something more tangential to what we're looking at. Don't simply duplicate what we're looking at, but think of the psychology of the characters and how you can subtly and sometimes, as in the Godfather murder scene, not so subtly underline a psychological state with carefully chosen sound. And if you're, if you're lucky and correct in your choices, you can get away literally with murder uh, in, a, in a good creative sense. But A, you can always go further uh, than you think you can, and if you have the time and the, uh, and, and it sounds like in this case the, the filmmakers are giving time, which is the most valuable thing, and uh, the, the lack of time is probably the thing that holds back uh, the, the work more than anything else. Well, I think it, it also, um, it, it alleviates a common problem, which is if the sound team swoops in at the last minute and ladles on all of this extra material, you know, the filmmaker hasn't lived with it, the filmmaker isn't used to it, uh, and, and often I think there's kind of an, an allergic reaction to it. Right. Yeah, that, that's a very yeah. good uh, case for um, certainly what I try to do, and I, I know the Coen brothers do it too, working with Skip, is that yeah. Skip will Skip. bring in the sound early uh, and, and give the editors, in this case uh, the Coen brothers themselves, the, in a sense, premixes of the sound effects that they can lay up on a couple of the tracks of the of the picture edit so that as just as you said they get used to this uh, approach it's with i mean they've been working with skip for the last thousand years so they all know each other and know their approach very well um, but nonetheless it really does help uh, and it's, it's the technology that we have today enables it to get used to these sounds so that you know, in the end, the mix isn't uh, the filmmaker being hit with a wall of sound that is mostly chaotic that you have to right. thread your way through. Now, and I, th I think this is generally true in that, that now because of what we do digitally, the final mix is really just a place to hear it all together in a large acoustical space and shake holy water on it. And make a few tweaks here and there, but you are not, as we were in the old days, we were creating the soundtrack in the mix. Now the creation happens in the sound design rooms 
or just on the geniuses with their laptops. And you, you hear it all together because you're listening to the premixes as you're editing the picture. And then, okay, we've scheduled five days for the mix because that's all we need. You just, you just have to listen right. to these premixes, maybe do a little finessing balancing of things uh, given the acoustical space of the theater, and then you're done. You started answering, answering that question by talking about the early days of Zoetrope, which actually kind of leads into the question that Randy Tom had for you. Um, Randy, obviously, um, a very well-known sound designer and mixer in our business who's worked on The Revenant and The Incredibles and Castaway and Forrest Gump and numerous other pictures. But, you know, he, there, there's a lot of, I think, legend about those early days of Zoetrope and the work that, uh, that you guys all did together when you moved back up to San Francisco. And I think part of that legend is that there was a lot of cross-pollinization and people were collaborating on everyone else's scripts and, and there was just a very sort of collegial atmosphere. So Randy was curious about the evolution of Carol Ballard's film, The Black Stallion, which kind of came out of that very, you know, fertile period uh, of Zoetrope. And, and so Randy, Randy writes, the first half of that film is an amazing tour de force for sound design, beginning with the shipwreck and then with the boy and the horse alone on the island. So he, uh, Randy uh, wonders if you could talk a little bit about Th that in, in light of that particular film, writing film scripts with sound in mind, thinking about thinking about sound as you're at the very beginning of the process as you're as you're writing. Yeah. No. Uh, Carol Ballard and I worked on the first draft of the Black Stallion for a year, um, and I would say half of that first draft was the island, uh, it was the shipwreck and the island. So we were thinking about that all the time. I mean, it helps, obviously, because there's no dialogue in the, on the island. And back uh, at the beginning of our talk, I, I said that the, the effect of dialogue is like the effect of a full moon at night, and that it prevents you from seeing the stars that are there, and really relishing mm -hmm. them. When there's no dialogue, you, the filmmakers, and you, the audience, are thrown back into a pre-linguistic world, and you start uh, as our um, ancient forebears millions of years ago, listening to the world in a pre-linguistic way, which is very informative. And it's still available to us, it's just that it's usually drowned out by the Klieg lights of dialogue that, that uh, occupy such a big psychic space. So I, I think, I mean, there's clearly wonderful sound that Alan Splett did in, in that film. I, I didn't work on the editing or the, the dialogue, uh, the mix of that film. I collaborated with Carol on the script. In the end, there was uh, unfortunately an arbitration and I, I, I and Gil Dennis, who also worked on it, didn't get credit. It's a crime against mm -hmm. nature, but that's uh, in the past. Um, but um the I, I think the you know also carol i remember as we were writing uh we'd come up on a scene in which there was dialogue and i would notice a certain sag to his shoulders when i came in in the morning i'd say what's the matter carol and i knew what the matter was and he'd say we're well, gonna have to write another blab scene and uh, <laughs> dialogue to him is just blab, 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 blab. And so he was very happy 
anytime there was no dialogue because it was just images and sound. And that's paradise for Carol Ballard. Yeah. yeah. But you're right in that there's a tremendous amount of cross-fertilization. We basically, we left Los Angeles in 1969 because we had all had a great time in film school. Francis had gone to UCLA, George and I had gone to USC. Uh, but we had all had a great time in film school and we were depressed when we got out of film school to discover that Filmmaking in Hollywood was very regimented and everyone had their little box and you couldn't mm -hmm. uh, do this kind of cross-fertilization that we had all experienced in film school. So we left and we went to San Francisco where the unions were not as restrictive and that allowed us to do all of this cross-fertilization work of writing scripts and editing and directing and uh, mixing and coding films and, you know, doing all of the crazy <laughs> things that you had to do to film. Everyone pitched in, and it was great. You mentioned film school, and I, I get asked by, you know, young people who are aspiring to be in the business all the time, is film school a good idea? Should I go to film school? And obviously, I think you, you've talked about the fact that film school is radically different now than it was when you uh, were studying at USC because I think when you when you were at USC there really wasn't an expectation that people in film school would go on to have a career in film. Um, Just the opposite. If you yeah. went to film, if you went to film school, it was a black mark against you because you <laughs> you were on your high horse. You you knew things. You knew book learning, but you didn't know the smell of gunpowder in the trenches. So uh, it was it was a counterindication to go to film school. So what's your advice, uh, as I often get at questions from uh, you know, young people and trying to break into the industry, should I go to film school? What are your, what are, what are your thoughts on the validity of film school these days? I, I think there are two things to keep in mind, that if you are a super talented filmmaker and you uh, have six spare weeks you can learn everything you need to know to get off the starting blocks about filmmaking and just start making your movies, whatever that means. You know, you have to get financing and everything. But filmmaking is not like medicine or law or any of these other uh, professional crafts where, where you have to spend years learning the duodenal connection between your stomach and your brain. Um, you just... Uh, get out there and do it. That would apply to the three or four Mozartian filmmakers that come along every year who are just, they just know how to do it. Right. You do need the, the companionship of other filmmakers to uh, teach you things and to alleviate your doubts and to go have a beer with and to cry in your beer. Just you know, a fellow feeling. It's, it's lonely out there when you're trying to get started. And going to film school alleviates the loneliness. You'll find you'll make friends. And then on a practical level, the chances of one of you, let's say there are a group of six of you, the chances of one of you landing a film is better than the chances of any you know, one of you alone. So one of you six might get something. Sure. And then that person might say, 
come on, you know, come help me. And then now you're working in the business. So there's a practical aspect to it, which certainly was true in, in my case. You know, that's how I got started in features was having gone to film school with George, uh, who won the scholarship to go to Warner Brothers. I was his competition. There were the two of us in the final uh, thing. He, he won it. But he met Francis there, and they got along great, and that's how I wound up working on Rain People. So the first decade or so of your career was marked by working with closely with George and Francis, and temperamentally, they're pretty different guys. Uh, how, how was the process for you? I'm sure that they needed very different things from you. How did you, how did you kind of navigate that territory with the two of them? Yeah, they're they're they are different. Uh, Francis is a real gambler, and on on many different levels simultaneously. George, in a big sense, is a gambler. I mean, anyone who sets out to make Star Wars is gambling tremendously at that time because everyone thought this will never work. Uh, but on the other hand, there are large parts of George that are very sensible, and he's a very good businessman. I mean, they're both good businessmen in a sense, but they approach it from the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, and it was great for me because it was like uh, being in Finland and jumping in the icy lake and then running back to the sauna and warming up and then running outside to jump in the icy lake. I won't say which of George or Francis was the sauna or the icy lake, but they were so different. Uh, and, but the, the contrast was fantastic. That's great. Well, I do. Uh, just another couple of questions. You've been very patient with this sure. whole process. So um, uh, I have a question for you from Will Files, who is, uh, uh, I used to refer to him as an up and coming sound designer, but he's pretty, he's pretty up and come already. Uh, he, he's, uh, he worked on Deadpool recently and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, and he, so Will, Will writes, I'm almost embarrassed to pose such a process oriented question, but I can't help myself. One of my favorite sound moments in any movie is the opening surveillance scene in the conversation. And then the subsequent scenes of Harry Call analyzing the sounds in his lab, the distinctive way the sounds are distorted are both interesting to the ear, but also very evocative and instantly help the under, the audience understand what's happening. I've always been so curious to know how you actually created those sounds and how you arrived at that particular sound treatment. I was working on the Godfather, mixing the Godfather down at what used to be Goldwyn studios. And rumor mm -hmm. came out that somebody at the, in Salt Lake City at the university was working on digital sound. Um, so I knew that digital sound was hovering around. And I began thinking, well, if digital sound is coming, where are we going to put it on the film? And so <laughs> I, as we were mixing The Godfather, I would throw the film out of rack. It was a 185 film, and I was thinking, we can put all of the digital information in between the frames of the, the of 185 film. And mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, that's sort of what happened. It turned out to be in between the sprockets and, you know. The sprockets, yes. Put it wherever we could put it. Uh, anyway, I was thinking digital. And then after Godfather, Francis went on to make conversation. And there's a scene in the conversation where Harry called pulls out one of his devices, turns a knob, and music disappears, and you hear a voice that's in the background. And 
I said, well, that's clearly impossible using any analog techniques, but it's at least theoretically possible using digital techniques. If you could analyze mm -hmm. the music and then subtract all the musical information, you would be left with whatever wasn't music, which is to say the dialogue. So that means that Harry Call is using digital technology before it was even invented. That's what I said to myself. And that also helped me to solve a problem at the beginning of the film, which is the question, which is how do we show and hear sound that is not being correctly recorded? If it's analog, right. all it does is kind of go off mic, but that's not clear enough. So I thought, well, if it's digital, then there's some got to be some kind of matrixing involved. And when it goes off matrix, it will go into digital distortion. This is before I'd ever heard any. So I thought, what will digital distortion sound like when it comes? And that's when I pulled out the ARP synthesizer that we had and started experimenting with square waves as control tracks for the audio. And I just kept twiddling it until I got something that said, that's a digital sound. And then I started pouring it onto the film uh, right from the beginning uh, to, sh to get the ear used to the sound because that's the sound. Mm -hmm. When things aren't working, that's what it sounds like. And then uh, starting mixing it with the coherent analog part of the sound so that you get a sense of, here's, here it's half and half. Anyway, it, uh, then it, it wound up uh, squirreling itself into all different places in the film. But that, that was the origin of it, was trying to imagine what digital sound was like before digital sound had been really invented. That is amazing. And you, you hit on something that sounds very much like the digital distortion that we have right yeah. now with, for instance, uh, uh, an intermittent Skype connection. That's, yes, it's, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Walter, I think we're, we're towards the end of our conversation here. I really want to thank you for spending the time to talk to us sure. about uh, film sound and editing. And I just wanted to say anecdotally that uh, uh, one of the great bits of fun about communicating with you about setting up this interview is your email signatures um oh, you, yeah. you uh, now is this is this a is this an automated thing that populates or do you actually find you send all these interesting things on the signatures of your email about pufferfish love at the bottom of the ocean you know the of the, of the sea right. of japan or how much water is there on the earth all these interesting sort of natural science right. things yeah, no, I just, you know, I, I have about 20 of them and they're they're on auto-rotate. So when I make an email, one of them at random gets put on the email. And I have to do a little bit of due diligence thinking, well, that person, the person I'm writing to now does, wouldn't really get this one. So let me select something else. Uh, but I don't do that with you. You you get the raw deal. You get whatever comes up. Because you can take it, Glenn. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Walter. Thank well, it also, to me, just speaks to one of the fascinating things about you, which is that you're 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 so engaged with the natural world around you. I think it uh, it, it makes you it makes you a more interesting filmmaker. That's for sure. Well, it, it certainly has been an interesting ride. Yeah. <laughs> Walter, thanks so much. So it was a pleasure talking to you today. Okay, my pleasure. <laughs>